Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz broadcasting live on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com as well as on WBSM.com, the WBSM Airwaves and the Radio Pop App. So many ways to get the show. And of course, a lot of you listening on podcasts after the fact, that's fine. Uh, we, we, we miss you on Saturday nights. We wish that you were here with us. But people are busy. Life happens. We understand. That's why we have the podcasts. And uh, and thank you to all of the new listeners who keep joining us each and every week. Great to have you on board this crazy ship. And uh, if you if you are watching on Spooky TV, you notice that we've set up as if we were going to have our fourth co-host here tonight, Stephanie Burke. There was a rumor going around that she might make it in tonight. But alas... We don't see her yet. It's all right. She was getting a night out. Her and her and her husband were getting a night out with, uh, without the the baby. So, well deserved. Although we did have a chance the other night to to see Stephanie for the first time and since, since the baby yeah. was born, uh, when we were at Lizzie Borden's, we actually got called in for an emergency investigation. And a lot of people have been asking Moni's, uh, hitting me up on Twitter and Facebook and saying, if Leanne runs the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, and if she always has people in there trying to document activity, what all of a sudden made what was happening now different to the point where she needed somebody to come and check out what was going on? Well, it was more what she felt. Usually when she's in there and activity happens, it's, you know, normal run-of-the-day melt stuff for her. This particular thing that... uh, I guess stared her down or whatever it gave her a bad feeling so rather than deal with it she uh, had us come in and see what we could find Uh, I haven't finished listening to all my audio yet but haven't really found anything that that I would consider you know class A EVP or anything a couple little yeah, we had a lot of things happening, uh, you know, in the room itself. You know, when we were in the room, we would have noises happening, shadow yeah. play, uh, knocking and banging and things like that. And, and it's funny because Alicia, who was with us, she actually put up a post that said, you know, uh, it's, you know, you're a paranormal investigator when you're saying that you had shadows, you had sounds, <laughs> disembodied voices, you know, hearing women's voices, all this kind of stuff. And it's not a big deal. It's just yeah, right <laughs> of the mouth. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of how it was that night. It doesn't mean that, um, you, you know, there's nothing going on there that is making Leanne feel uncomfortable. It just means that we didn't right. encounter it that night. And and to be fair, I mean, it's not like we had all night to spend there either. It was a weeknight. Everybody had to work the next day. Right. And they, we were there for, what, three or four hours. Yeah, and even that. then, like, we weren't fully investigating the entire time because, you know, we just – we were talking and, yeah. and discussing other things. And uh, But when we were paying attention and, and, and focusing in, things were certainly happening. And, and – the best part about it is that we can go to Leanne and say afterwards, like, okay, well, it's not happening right now. So, and she of all people knows how that works, right? Yeah, and and she understands that that me, you know, it doesn't mean that because we said nothing was happening that she thinks that everything's fine and back to normal. She understands that it could change on a dime at any given second. She knows that we're all just a phone call away, right? So if that happens, and the good thing too is that. Uh, you know, just because she's uncomfortable, I didn't feel uncomfortable in the house. I didn't, you know, I didn't any different than I normally feel. And everybody, nobody seemed to be very apprehensive about what was going on. No, I, I think it was a very 
normal night as normal is in that place. Um, and I don't think that there was anything malevolent that uh, I could sense, but that's just my senses, and I'm sure your senses are different as is Andy's. I think that uh, we'll still be in good shape in February when we bring everybody in for Dead of Winter, uh, which will be happening February 28th. But the tickets are sold out. The event has uh, officially sold out. We actually had the last two tickets go uh, the night after our investigation. So I don't think it's correlated. I just, you know, somebody was looking to buy tickets for a while and then they just happened to buy them at that time. Uh, But we will be planning some other Legend Trips events uh, in the future in 2015. So stay tuned to legendtrips.com. And also sign up for the mailing list on legendtrips.com if you would like to make sure that you get first crack at those tickets because we always offer them to the mailing list first in a pre-sale. It's it's kind of a way to reward everybody that pays attention to the website and to reward the people who have been to previous events, and we make sure that you get first crack. Lizzie Borden, for the most part, you know, it was three-quarters of the way sold out just in pre-sale alone. But we have a lot of repeat customers. There is. Luckily with this one, I mean, not luckily. I mean, we don't care. You can come to every single one or you can come for the first time and never come back as long as you come in and help and support these historic locations. But uh, we do have a lot of people coming in February that will be first-timers, okay. uh, whether it be first-timers to Lizzie's or first-time legend trippers overall. So I'm very excited about that because I love getting to show people how it's done, at least in the in the form of a Legend Trips event. Right. But I like to, to show them and, and, and have that new blood come in. And some of these people are so excited, they can't, they can't wait. And I'm like, all right, well, you still got a couple of months away. So, uh, But if you would like to come and hang out with us and you don't want to wait a couple of months, well, you only have to wait a couple of weeks. Because on December 12th, it's a Friday night, we will be presenting Oddfest 2014. It's a Legend Trips event. Uh, we, we put on this holiday party every year now. This will be the third year that we've done it. And the previous two, we've donated all the toys that we collected for the uh, Toys for Todd's Drive. This year, we're working with the Charles R. Foley Jr. Gilmartin Foundation, uh, based out of Cape Cod, and they'll be joining us to help collect toys for needy families. So if you want to come to this party, all we ask is that you bring an unwrapped toy, as a donation. There's no other cover charge. You get to come in. You get to hang out. We're going to have a full bar. The place that we're going to, it's the Trowbridge Tavern in Bourne. I'm sure you've been there, Marty. I know exactly where it is. And we will be in the downstairs, the canal room. We'll have the whole room to ourselves. And this has, there's a dance floor. There are tables. There's a full bar down there. You can go upstairs if you want to grab something to eat. You know, some people, we're doing the event on December 12th from 7 to whenever they throw us out. And so some people might eat dinner before they come. Some people might not get the chance. So the Trowbridge Tavern upstairs would be happy to make you up uh, some dinner. And then we'll be downstairs knocking back some drinks and having fun. We're going to be doing what we call Sing Star Skaraoke. Oh, boy. And and not just Sing Star Skaraoke, Sing Star Skaraoke Battles. Matt Costa, you've been at my house when we busted out the Sing Star before. And this is, uh, we have to talk about the logistics of this. You know, figuring it out technically. Because I, basically i got to come up with a TV that I can bring down there. I'll, I'll see if they have one. But they've been kind enough, the Trowbridge Tavern, to donate the room for us. So I don't want to put too much pressure on them. You know, and ask for too much. What kind of TV you need? Just kind of something big enough for everybody to see. And what we'll do is we'll connect my PlayStation 3 to it, and I've got a stack 
like this high of nudie books, no, of SingStar games, uh, which is it's like a karaoke video game. And so I will bring all those and we will plug them into the PlayStation 3. People can pick the songs they want off the discs and we'll do battles because it keeps points. So you can go back and forth. You know, you do a line, I do a line, or you do the song and I do the song and it will keep track of all the points and then declare a winner. So we're going to have karaoke rap battles. I've already thrown down the gauntlet. Matt, you've been to my house for these. You know, nobody has beaten me on Love Fool by the Cardigans. Yes. Nobody has beaten me on uh, uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. And nobody has beaten me on I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner. So I, and, and keep in mind, I'm not saying I'm a good singer at all. But you don't have to be a good singer to play this game. You just have to fit the parameters of the game, which is what makes it better than regular karaoke. So I will throw out the, the challenge for any of those songs or whatever else. I, I'm, I'm hoping I can get Belanger to do It's Tricky with me, maybe. Oh, yeah. He probably would. I think, I think he will. I, I, I think he's going to have no shame, no embarrassment at all. Uh, so it, I actually was uh, talking to some folks before. I think Amy Bruni's going to be coming. So and there'll be some other notable people in the paranormal as well. They all love to come to Oddfest. And every year we, we draw some of the uh, the people that you see on TV as well as some paranormal investigators from across New England. So if you want to come and party with some paranormal people, Friday, December 12th at the Trowbridge Taverns Canal Room. It's right over the Bourne Bridge. If you go to legendtrips.com, we have the information up there about the event. And you can find out how to get to the Trowbridge Tavern. Bring an unwrapped toy for the Charles R. Foley Jr. Gilmartin Foundation. And if you are coming from far away or if you want to have the chance to maybe really let loose and have a few too many, it's the Trowbridge Tavern is actually part of the Quality Inn right there over the bridge so you can get a room. Just let them know that you're with our party and uh, and they'll make sure that you get a room at a pretty decent deal and then you'll be able to just walk upstairs. I live five minutes. Or stumble. I, exactly. I live five minutes away from this place, and I'm thinking about getting a room just so I can <laughs> <laughs> crawl back upstairs. Uh, but uh, it should be a fun time. Again, Friday, December 12th. And if you are local and you don't have anything to do this coming Wednesday, I will be the featured speaker for the Southeastern Council for the Social Studies Winter Meeting. It's happening at the Century House in Akushnet, and it's $29 to get in. $29 to hear Tim Weisberg talk? What a ripoff. No, not at all, because you're actually paying for the Century House buffet. We've all been to the Century House. Mm-hmm. We know how good the food is there. You're getting steak tips. You're getting roast pork loin. You're getting all the dessert, uh, all the uh, vegetables and, and potatoes and all that stuff, and ice cream with strawberry sauce, coffee tea, all, all of it, $29. And uh, it'll start at 5.30 with the attitude adjustment time which is what they're calling their little cocktail time, where you can come in, unwind, have a few drinks, talk to some people. Then at 6 o'clock, I'll kick things off with the Ghost of the South Coast Multimedia Interactive Presentation. We'll do a little Q&A, and then at 7 o'clock, it'll be time for dinner. We will get fed until we burst, and then afterwards... If the, uh, if the Century House is cool with it, we're going to poke around. With I'll bring some of the ghost hunting equipment. We'll poke around. We'll see if we can find anything there. Stephanie has said that she has picked up on a lot of energies there in the past. So I think that uh, it will be worth, worth the time. So we will do that uh, this coming Wednesday. And, of course, the proceeds go to benefit the Southeastern, Southeastern Council for the so- – Southeastern Council for the Social Studies. I, I keep flubbing that all up. But <laughs> if you want to get tickets – it's real easy to do so. All you have to do is send an email to dv 
DVD at Comcast.net. DVD at Comcast.net. That is the way to let them know ahead of time that you would like to reserve your tickets for this event at the Century House this coming Wednesday. Uh, Also, uh, let me get you the phone number here. Give me one second. Got to load it up on my screen. You can call 508-984-3429 and just leave a message. 508-984-3429. I believe you can also get tickets at the door as well. But uh, $29 for the Southeastern Council for the Social Studies Annual Winter Event, and I will be there presenting Ghosts of the South Coast. And, of course, I've gone out and given this presentation other places before, but Moniz, we're always investigating around here. True. So every time I'm out there presenting it, I've got new stuff to add into it. And uh, I think I don't think I've presented this since we've had some of the more intriguing uh, experiences at Fort Tabor. I'm actually pretty excited to go back there this spring. We will be. We have to work out the dates, but uh, we will definitely be returning to Fort Tabor, Fort Rodman with Legend Trips. That is uh, absolutely 100% the coolest place that we get to investigate here on the South Coast. Lizzie Borden's is awesome in its own right, but the fact that we get to go into this fort and go into Battery Milliken and go into these places where people generally aren't allowed. Yeah. Only you know, only a few times a year do they open the fort and they never let people in Milliken. So we have this opportunity to get in there and the whole time that we're doing this, we know that we're raising money to help them restore what we see around us. So it's uh, it's extra special. What I enjoy is we actually kept, you know, the doors open this past winter for them. Yep, yep. We've been paying for their uh, for their heat in the winter time, and uh, we have helped them with other renovations. And yeah, that, that's a huge task ahead of them to renovate yeah. the fort completely and to get Milliken at a, at, a, at a point where they can actually let people into it. So it's going to take a lot, but uh, we're just happy that we can help in some small way. And uh, we will be going back there. I'm trying to think of where some, some of the other places that we've had discussions with. I don't want to give anything away just yet, but uh, we'll definitely be going to some new spots in 2015 that we've never gone to before with Legend Trips, and we'll also return to some old favorites as well. A lot of folks have been asking me about the Faring Tavern. Uh, we didn't do Haunted History Night this year in October. We decided to give it a break. Uh, but uh, a lot of people have been asking about getting back in there. So I know that the Wareham Historical Society would love to have us go back. I'm thinking this year maybe we'll do it in the summertime, though. That seems like a better idea. Just because it, we'll have the opportunity to open it up to more of the, the tourists that come around, and we can get more of an interest from the summer people. Because, you know, we we live in Wareham. We know it's 20,000 people in the winter yeah. and 60,000 in the summer. So why not get more people involved and more interest? Plus, that's when the tours are going on is the summertime. That's when they have the daytime tours. So maybe that will help kind of stir things up a little bit so that when we go in there at night, we might have some more activity ramped up. But uh, absolutely 100%, uh, we will return to the Faring Tavern at some point. So just go to legendtrips.com and sign up. It sounds like we're doing a bunch of commercials here. but Yeah, this whole... We have, a lot of, we, we have a lot of stuff to promote. Yeah. And without Stephanie, we haven't been doing the Week and Weird either, so... We fill this time with letting people know uh, various things that are going on. Now, last week, we talked about the uh, Kennedy assassination and, uh, of course, being the 51st anniversary. We got into some of the more some of the more obscure theories, yeah. uh, and we brought in a lot of the UFO talk. And I know that, Moniz, you've been talking with some uh, people that you know in the UFO field, some abductees, people who have never been heard on the radio that will be joining us in, in the coming months. Yes. Uh, one of the- one of the people I've 
got coming actually has to do with the uh, Bentwaters incident. Um, John Burroughs, who is one of the uh, special policemen that uh, was guarding the base on the nights that the uh, event happened. His was the first night with Jim Penniston. And it was a very intriguing encounter where they encountered this uh, landed craft out in the woods. Uh, John Burroughs witnessed the event as uh, Jim Pennison was walking around the craft, and he was the guy that relayed the basically the descriptions back to base as Penniston was doing his thing because of their distance, their walkie-talkies could only reach so far. And he was the man in the middle, so to speak. And if we work everything out, he'll be able to join us on the anniversary of, uh, of his sighting. So that will be pretty pretty intriguing. Uh, has he done a lot of other interviews? I, I don't I don't remember hearing yeah, him on a lot of well. Other him and Jim Pennison put out a book, and they've been doing only a handful a handful of various shows, and he's agreed to come on ours. So. And uh, I've talked with uh, with Jim Pennison in the past, you know, online, and we've tried to make plans to bring him on. And it's and scheduling <laughs> with these guys is, <laughs> things, is tough. Yeah, things don't always work out. It's a it's a little bit strange, uh, but uh, we'll definitely cover that topic and a whole bunch more. There's so many things that we want to get involved with, especially coming up in 2015 as we enter our. We'll be in our tenth year. We'll be celebrating our ninth anniversary at the end of January. People are already asking me, "Are we going to have a birthday party?" I'm thinking maybe we'll find a way to do a little something. Uh, One of the requests I got was for a costume party because, Hmm. you know, Halloween has already passed and it'll be a few months past and people don't want to have to wait all the way until the next October to start wearing their costumes. So maybe we'll do a little bit of a costume party. But uh, I think I'm just going to – I'm going to make it easy and just go as one of you guys, I think. Okay. We can all go as each other. (laughs) All right. Who would you want to go as? I'm going to go as pregnant Stephanie. Pregnant Stephanie? Yeah. I knew you would probably pick that one, yeah. And uh, I, have, I have the perfect cash here for it. And Moniz, you can go as Matt. Just wear, yeah, just that wear, way I don't have to change my name. Well, I said just wear a gorilla suit and smoke a cigarette. <laughs> okay. That's uh, You also, I don't know how you do it, but you, you spend a significant amount of time searching for like obscure monkey photos and videos. The one that you pulled out today was fantastic. Oh, yeah. There's, um, I have a slew on my phone. Do you? Just, yeah, yeah, just saved just, up. Just ready to go right. at any given yeah. time. <laughs> now, are you tweeting these out as well? Uh, yes, yes. So you can follow Matt yeah. at Smoking Monkeys, M-O-N-K-E-E-Z, because you had to make it a Z instead of an S so that you didn't get sued by the exactly. band. Exactly, yep. And <laughs> you don't want to spell it the right way because then, then monkeys will sue yeah. you, the actual animals. Uh, so, But you can follow him at Smoking Monkeys. You can follow Stephanie at sberk 910 Follow me at Tim Weisberg. Follow the show at SpookySC, which is probably how you can tweet from Oni's and We'll just text him whatever your question is because he refuses. Sign him up for Twitter before the end of the night here. Before he leaves, you have to start him a Twitter, at least that he can just use during the show. He can do it right on his phone and answer questions and interact with people. But you can interact with us on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive. That's the way to do it. If you're looking at Spooky TV, you will see right there in front of you that uh, the Spooky Live hashtag collects. All right there on the screen. Makes it so much easier to follow along with the conversation while you're watching Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. So there you have it. Couldn't be any easier to interact with us, but there is one other way. You can call in at 508-996-0500, You will see those numbers on the screen throughout the course of the night. If you have to call in with a question, that is the way to do so. And if you are listening on podcasts... 
Too bad. You should have been here live. <laughs> That's why we come in every Saturday night from 10 to midnight Eastern time. And uh, we have the phone lines open throughout the course of the show so you can ask questions of our guests. And speaking of guests, we have tonight's guest on the line. Let's bring up Michelle. And, and Michelle, I'm going to try to – I know what's going to happen here because you know we deal with your unrelated relative, Jeff Belanger, all the time. Pronounce it however you wish. <laughs> but it's, it's Belanger. Yeah, you say it with a French twist. Okay. So in, in now you really just pronounce it that way just so people know that you're not related to Jeff, right? That's that's the real reason. Uh actually my grandfather pronounced it that way and corrected me. I was brought up pronouncing it the same way that Jeff was, and apparently that was because my grandmother really had a very unhappy divorce with my grandfather and it was sort of her way of getting back at him. Well, I, I suppose, you know, as long as you're getting back at somebody, but I, I prefer that you get back at Jeff because, you know, he's... No, Jeff's cool. He, as oh, far we, as we can tell, we are actually not related, uh, and that last name and that spelling is fairly common among Acadian French, which you find peppered throughout uh, French Canada and Ontario and New England. Yeah, we just we just like to kill him here because he's one of our best friends. So, you know, we, we take every dig we can at him. Uh, and, and well, he's we, a hilarious goofball. He knows he knows we love him. Well, we, we, uh, we run legend trips with him, and uh, we take people out to historic haunts, and, and uh, we're always doing stuff together. So uh, he's, he's definitely one of the best people out there. But uh, we want to talk to you tonight about your work because you have a, a very long and impressive career as well, and I can't believe we've been on the air nine years. We haven't had you on the show until now. I hide and write. <laughs> you do. I mean, you, you're always coming out with new material. Uh, and, of course, people know you for things such as the Psychic Vampire Codex, uh, Vampires in Their Own Words. Uh, you've, you've written the Dictionary of Demons, which is, uh, you know, that's got to be on everybody's shelf uh, if they're getting involved in, in the paranormal and the occult. With all of the work that you've done, I mean, how do you keep finding new avenues of exploring these topics? Uh, well, I, I read a lot. Um, and my, my background is where folklore, mythology, uh, comparative religious studies, and the paranormal all converge. And so there's a huge amount of information and, and different topics that can branch off from there. I mean, you could write, I could probably write volumes on demons alone if you wanted to talk about incubus and succubus and just the, the origin of the idea of embodied evil. And you go back to Babylonian and Sumerian ideas of exorcism and uh, possession. It's just... Once you scratch the surface with any of the topics of the weird, that rabbit hole goes down really, really, really far. And it seems like each time you peel back a, a, a layer, there's another layer to the story. There's and there's connections. There's connection connections amongst all the things that you research. Yes, um, and and that's actually what ends up leading me from one thing to another. Uh, if I when I started primarily researching vampires in, in fiction and folklore, and I dug further and further into the folklore, uh, you go back far enough, and there's a very thin line, and actually far enough back, there's no line at all, between vampires, demons, witches, shapeshifters, and multiple other things. So really, to understand one, you kind of have to understand them all. And then from the folklore perspective, to really understand why folklore exists in the way that it does, in the way that it changes, and the way that the lines blur, you kind of have to start studying psychology and history and how people think and, and how they make up these stories or how they tell stories about real things and those real things turn into our, our folkloric boogeymen. 
One of the things that I've always been fascinated by is the fact that those boogeymen, that those those things that scare us as as a culture uh, and, and as humankind, they seem to morph all the time. But there's always something. There always has to be something that we're either afraid of or something that we can use to instill fear in others. Uh, wh- what do you think might be the reason why we always have to have our boogeymen? If we want to take it from a humanist standpoint and assume that none of it's real, um, and that's a whole other story by itself, we as a species need to project outside of ourselves uh, the things which disturb us, uh, the things that we don't understand, uh, and they are personified, they're built up. We tell stories to explain all the things in the world around us that we need to contextualize, that we don't understand, or that we're not comfortable with. Um, and that's, that's, I think, what it really comes down to. Everything that I've studied for the past two decades and counting, oh, God, more than two, two decades, I'm getting old, uh, it's about the myths, the stories that people tell. And the monsters are a significant part of that. Our world isn't, isn't necessarily a kind world. There's lots of dark there outside of us. There's lots of dark inside of us and creating monsters that in a lot of ways are just mirrors that we hold up to ourselves is one way in which we we handle that, we learn about them, and we make ourselves feel comfortable in conquering them. Yeah. It seems almost like we have to have uh, you know, we have to have a way to play out some of our darker thoughts and some of our darker desires. And by creating these stories, it's almost like it, it gives us that avatar to, to you know, I can imagine, you know, the Brothers Grimm were probably pretty nice guys to deal with because they were working all those demons out, so to speak, uh, in their stories. So when we're able to reflect that back on ourselves, you know, we can see exactly who we might be if we didn't have those type of outlets. Well, as someone who also indulges in fiction writing, in addition to all the nonfiction research, I can say that there's a, there's a certain alchemy in the process of creating evil in your fictional work. You, you get to explore acts and, and concepts that you would never consider actually acting upon in your real life, and it gives you perspective on what is the real meaning of evil. It's very instructive, uh, and in a lot of ways therapeutic as well. Well, I mean, but when you think of things as we draw that line, we we have the good and evil, and we we make that line pretty clear uh, in terms of our uh, our general philosophy on them. But in actuality, in practice, there's varying degrees of that, and there's there's a lot of gray area amongst the two, uh, and and you don't see a lot of that in in folklore. You don't see a lot of that in the mythology of humankind. We we tend to have our heroes, and we tend to have our villains, and you you know, it's only been a relatively uh, a small segment of our of our legends and lore that involve the antihero or or that involve those shades of gray. Yeah, that's been oh about the past two hundred years or so, uh, and you can blame Lord Byron, or at least he's attributed with the, the Byronic hero, the dark hero, the antihero. Oh, you know, a lot of the stories. One of the reasons that in the folklore that you have such clear distinctions between what is light and dark, what is good and evil, is the very fact that in practical life we don't have those distinctions. You know, we, we, have, we have religious rules that tell us thou shalt not kill, and at the same time we go to war. Uh, and there are circumstances under which, if threatened, killing might be the only solution to surviving. And so 
just in, in practical everyday life, what we are faced with from moment to moment, we know it's never as clear cut as black and white. But to see it projected outside of ourselves in stories and myths and folklore, it gives us a sense of completion, of power, of simplicity. Let's it uh, lets one rest a little easier at night knowing that somewhere out there there is an easy answer as opposed to what we actually have to live with day to day. Yeah, and we seem to add when we when we have those tendencies toward the dark or toward evil, when we have those tendencies, we always seem to try to add a nobility to it, a reason why. I mean, if you look at what's been going on, of course, with uh, the the non-indictment in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, we we see all of these reactions to it, these guttural, basic. Uh, just very animalistic reactions to it, to go out, to loot, to pillage, to steal, to burn, to destroy. And then we add, we try to add that nobility to it of, well, we're doing it because we're fed up and because we want to see change. But in actuality, all we're really doing is we're, we're letting that darker side of us come forward. There is a very useful human urge to, to purge anger through action. Uh, and again, that brings to bear the fact that in, in fiction and in folklore and in myths, we have easy answers to what is good and what is evil. But in the real politic of the world, there's no, often no clear line. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we we live in a world where, you know, we ha- we have to walk that line. We have to we have to accept the fact that there is not going to be that clear division. And and we see it all the time in paranormal work. You know, we see that uh, there there can be those who go into it with the the best of intentions, and they want to help, they want to research, they want to have information, they want to educate, and they get caught up in a lot of the. We'll just call it, you know, the uh, we'll, we'll just call it the extracurricular stuff, all the drama and all that stuff. And but but what that's doing is that's playing into that same idea because now if you're not going into it, if you're not pure in your intentions of it, then you're running the risk of of uh, you know teetering toward that darker side of things. Well, everybody ends up being motivated for different reasons. Some people are motivated to delve into the paranormal because they're trying to prove something to themselves. There are some people who are trying to prove something to the world. There are people who are really seeking to, I don't know, some of them, I'm sure you've run into them, who, who they're just sort of trying to fill a hole that they know is missing somewhere, and the proof isn't even the issue. It's just they want something uh, to give them a, a sense of purpose. For some, it's just fun and games. Uh, and then, of course, there are the, the, the self-proclaimed holy warriors who are going out to either save the poor earthbound lost souls out there or to pre- prevent uh, the attack of the demonic, uh, and that is a whole other topic of people having a, a great need to create stark lines of black and white when oftentimes there are shades of gray. Well, and we can certainly get into the demonic aspect of things a little bit later on, uh, but with somebody such as yourself, I mean, your background and, and the way that you got involved in this, it wasn't like some of other folks, you know, like a lot of us have paranormal experiences and, and we decide to explore a little bit more and research it, and that's how we get drawn into it. Some people just become interested in it from uh, seeing it on television or reading about it in books. It's From reading your background, it sounds like you didn't really have a choice. You were just kind of drawn into these things by, by uh, just by nature of who you were? My life is certainly pretty strange. I mean, I, I grew up in a small town here in Ohio that celebrates the return of turkey vultures every year on the Ides of March. So that is my yardstick for normal. 
<laughs> in addition to that, we had a everybody in the town pretty much knew that we had a haunted library, uh, and I mean like. You know, you go to school in middle school and high school, and you've got like the, go- the the jocks and the nerds and the geeks and the the goths. And usually, the jocks are not the ones who are believing that there's going to be you know ghosts that you will encounter in your local your local uh, library. But in my town, pretty much everybody had had some experience there. Um, the family I grew up with. Weird stuff was really kind of how things worked, from, you know, the uncle who was in the Air Force who would take me UFO hunting with him, to my grandmother who had experiences and very quietly um, helped me deal with mine. Uh, but she had this this attitude that I think was uh, an outgrowth of some of the conspiracy theories of the 70s, which was you, you kind of kept it to yourself. She had some concerns that, much like stories in Stephen King, the government would take a little too much interest in somebody who had extraordinary abilities. Mm-hmm. So it was more behind closed doors until I really, I don't know, hit my teens. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a researcher uh, by, by nature. Uh, if I want to understand something, I read everything I can get my hands on about it. I talk to people who've had experiences with it. And that didn't necessarily fit with my grandmother's idea of you handle your talents by being quiet about them. Uh, and that's sort of led me to where I ended up, uh, because once I started writing, reading books, I also felt that there was uh, a need for certain things to be out there, books that just I would have loved to have had them. Uh, I saw that they weren't there, so I wrote them myself. And and so in those younger days, in those younger times, it, you know, in talking with your grandmother, did you feel like you needed to identify with other people who were going through the same things that you were, or or did you subscribe to her theory early on that you know let's keep this under wraps? I don't want anybody to know this about me because we hear that with people who have uh, who are drawn into this. Some of them say I tried everything I could to be quote unquote normal, and other people say I just wanted to find other people who knew what it was like. What well, what was it kind of like for you uh, when you were a teen? I like my approach to knowledge is no single person has the entire perspective or the entire answer. So I was driven to find other people who had experiences as well so I could compare and contrast so I could learn more about how things worked for them um, and from their perspective uh, better understand how things were working for me. Uh, Just knowing from my my grandmother and my mother and the other family members who had abilities, it was clear to me from an early age that um, not not all psychics, uh, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me using air quotes, but I'm using air quotes. No, but I psychically realized that you were. (laughs) But not all psychics have the same uh, spread of abilities. That We use the word psychic, and it's a, a very clumsy linguistic placeholder for this whole umbrella of a continuum of abilities, some of which are actually really just kind of Sherlock Holmesian levels of perception, um, where somebody just happens to be, you know, whip smart and very perceptive about their environment, but it may appear to be psychic to someone who doesn't realize how that person is arranging information um, as they come to it. To the other extreme, where there's just no way you can explain where the person came up with certain ideas um, or information, specifically data. Um, one of the most intriguing things to me is when someone has access to information that there's there's no way they would have been able to know that. Um, and that's the most provable of an ability in a fairly unprovable art. Right, yeah. 
And that that's, seems to be the most convincing for the people uh, who are like, how could you have known that? You know, that's usually that aha moment for them that there is something to these abilities. Uh, but w- with having these abilities and with realizing them and exploring them, did that – I don't want to use the word taint, but did, did that allow you to remain objective in your research? Were you able to look through it from the lens of the other perspective of people who will look at you and say, well, wait a minute, this stuff isn't real, so, so how can it be uh, what you say that it is? I do my best to be as objective as possible, um, and I go into it knowing that none of us, in any research and in any aspect of knowledge, uh, no individual is 100% objective. We all have our own perspective. We all put our own spin on things, um, and that goes for people who are researching uh, Shakespeare to quantum physics. Uh, so knowing that it is just human nature to be mildly biased to, to extensively biased toward one's own experience, uh, I do my absolute best to step aside from that and simply look at what somebody is telling me and not having um, an emotional investment in being right or wrong. Uh, that's actually probably the advice that I would want to pass on to anybody who wanted to do this kind of stuff and try to be objective. You have to be, you have to have neither an expectation of success or failure, um, and not be upset if you're proven wrong when you're trying to learn something about some, uh, about a topic or about yourself. And and that's really key for a lot of people that they just they can't grasp that that you know we don't know all the answers. So there's a good chance that no matter what you believe and in your heart of hearts and in your own experience, you feel is right. It could end up ultimately being wrong. I mean, we were talking the other night, Moniz, uh, at Lizzie Borden's about Michael Shermer and about how he was ardently yeah. against anything paranormal for so long until and then has an event until it happens to him. Yeah. So if he can change his mind, anybody can change their mind, I guess. Well, I was I was raised not only by my grandmother, but her elder sister and her younger brother. And my grandmother's elder sister, Rita, was she was a character first of all. Um, and I, I could tell you, I, I could use eat up hours just telling crazy stories about her. But she was um, highly educated. Uh, she ended up working as a social worker, although she was just a few credits shy of becoming a, a psychiatrist at a time when women didn't actually get that opportunity. She uh, ended up. T- uh, pulling out of that in order to go home and take care of her ailing mother. But anyway, she was a strict materialist, Freudian, and strangely also Catholic. Like, she didn't believe in anything weird, but was also very Catholic and was was in this family. And just, there was a point um, in her later years where she ended up passing out at church and having an out-of-body experience. And it made her have to rethink absolutely everything that we, she and I had ever argued about. Friendly arguments, by the way. We would end up debating everything from uh, you know, early scriptural interpretation on down to whether or not psychic exist and whether or not psychic abilities are evil. Um, but oh. her out-of-body experience was such that she was able to perceive things that had happened around her, and she could report them, and she had them verified and from her more scientific way of approaching things, she couldn't, she couldn't pretend that there wasn't something weird that had happened. She saw things even while her body was insensible. And it, it really shook her. Um, I, I'm not sure how she personally resolved it. Um, beyond, I ended up getting a, a weird, weird apology from her at one point because of it. 
Well, but I mean that, that's what's good too is when somebody can can cover a wide range of topics like that and really instill that fire in you uh, to keep seeking out answers. I mean, a lot of people will be like yourself, a natural born researcher, but not get that same type of support and get that same type of uh, just constant, pro, uh, you know, constant. Uh, uh, Somebody that they have to keep up with, you know, in terms of uh, of their own learning and their own development. So it sounds like you know that was a real motivating factor for you. Definitely, the thing that Aunt Rita bequeathed to me is a love for debate and to never get upset at the other person if they have an opinion different from yours. Uh, the, the debate itself um, is something that you can learn from, even if both parties come away from it still not seeing eye to eye with one another. Well, one of the uh, things that we definitely want to discuss coming up in the next hour, I mentioned uh, talking about demons, and I want to talk to you a little bit about vampirism as well, because you've written a lot about that, and, and of course, that's part of, of the life that you live. But I, I, I'm very fascinated by the fact that in your work, you're able to write, to, to give it kind of a simplification, as much about the light as you are the dark. And a lot of people who are in this field, and a lot of writers and authors who are involved in this field, they tend to be drawn more toward one or the other. And you've been able to keep a balance to, to say, okay, we can write about demons and we can also write about you know, working in the light. Is that because you're able to keep yourself grounded in that way? Is, is it your own reflection, uh, reflection on yourself of how you're able to cover both of those topics? Yeah, that is very much a reflection of me and a reflection of uh, all the things that contributed to uh, my youth and my love of knowledge. I don't think... Any, any knowledge is good or bad um, by itself, and if something is dangerous, uh, as many people interpret dark topics to be, it behooves us to understand it so that we can protect ourselves better against it. Uh, and I really don't like, I don't like extremes, because within myth and folklore, the world definitely does come down to black and white in those extremes, but again, as we've already talked, in, in real time, um, in our daily lives, it's all shades of gray. And so what seems to be the only workable answer is to find a way of navigating uh, those gray areas. And you, you see that very much in the different topics I cover in my work. One of the more fascinating aspects of the darker side of things is the, the fact, I mean, whether it be demons, or if you put a religious connotation on it, uh, but the fact that there is this evil and it seems to want to influence man and I often wonder about that. I mean, is that is that true? Are there actual evil beings out there that want to control us and want to run us? Because in the grand scheme of things, aren't we just one other animal running around this planet? There are. Well, first of all, I tend to be, and this drew, drove the uh, the folks in Carnival State a, a little crazy. <laughs> I'm very hesitant to ever attribute the term demon to any kind of paranormal thing that we encounter. Um, that sort of categoric idea of pure evil is simply not something that you often encounter. However, there are certainly a few incidents, um, rarer than most people uh, expect, where something does seem to be just really, I know, don't know if I would want to call it evil per se, but definitely malevolent, malicious, um, out to cause harm willfully. And I think we see that even though humans might be just another animal, there are people we've encountered in our lives who, you know, if, if all else 
if all the cards are on the table, their base impulse is to reach out and help someone, even if it hurts them. Um, and those are the people that we would most likely label as good. Some, something in their nature is good. And then there are those people, and I've got a friend, well, an acquaintance like this, where if she were driving down the road and she saw somebody, you know, broken down and wounded on the side of the road, she would actually take the time to calculate whether or not she would come ahead, come up ahead just monetarily and, and time-wise if it was worth her while to help this person. And if she, if she couldn't benefit in some way, she would never bother to do it. And we know that there are people like that out there who the first person they look after always is themselves without any concern for what it's going to do to anybody else. And then there are a few who go one better and really do not care what the consequences are on others as long as they come out on top. And if I were to um, attribute evil to anything, it's that kind of selfish act. So we've got capacity for good, we've got capacity for evil, and in my belief and my experience, uh, the world of the paranormal, the things that we deal with, these entities or spirits or ghosts or whatever you want to call them, are not significantly different from us. So there are those that are capable of great good and those that are capable of being terribly, viciously selfish with no concern for what it does to others or to even take delight in the fact that it does cause suffering. And you know those people, the people that are, are the people that are evil, and they own the fact that they're evil. I'm actually less afraid of them than I am some of the people who are, you know, you know, the hidden evil, the hidden danger of it. Because those are the people that scare me more. That can just turn on a dime. And, and there are a lot of people that are like that. And, and I think that we see a lot of it in paranormal research with some of these spirits that we encounter. You know, if spirits are indeed dead people, which is something that. You know, we'll we'll operate under that, even though I don't know if I agree with it 100. percent But if that's the case, then we're seeing a lot of us some of these spirits that were like that. That could be, you know, very loving and giving one minute, and then can turn and be very nasty the next. And and I think people are too quick to label that, as you said, as being demonic. trust betrayers, basically. Well, and not even, but not even that. I mean, not intentionally anyway. Just a matter of you know, they're they're. They're coming at you one way, and then they quickly turn the next. And and uh, and and as you were saying, Michelle, that a lot of people will consider that to be something demonic, when in fact it's it's probably something that could go either way. It just depends on on the flow of its mood. And I mean, to add to that, the most terrifying thing to me is a being, any being that is thoroughly convinced of its own capacity for good and the justness of its actions that is utterly blind to the fact that those actions are causing great harm. I agree with that for sure. <laughs> I don't even want to get into some of the, yeah. the people that I know that are like that. but uh, uh, I, I bears out that there are people like that, and some of the most terrible things that humans have ever been capable of doing have always been done in the name of right, just, good. In, in, in the name of God, too. But we'll leave that there uh, for right now. Yep. Uh, <laughs> when we come up uh, in the next hour, do, too, I do want to talk more about some of these other topics. And uh, we'll ask you a little bit about Paranormal State as well, because we're getting, you know, the tweets. Everybody wants to uh, talk a little bit about that as well. And, and I, I know that, you know, with there, there's probably certain things that you don't want to talk about or don't feel comfortable talking about. But we'll we'll discuss a little bit of that as well. Uh, but what, what are you working on right now? What's uh, I know that you've been writing all day. Uh, what, what are some of the topics? that you're researching currently? 
Um, I am actually writing a fiction series uh, signed with Titan Publishing. Uh, the first book's done and coming out next year, and I'm working on the second book. Uh, there's quite a few books in the series, so I'm going to keep myself busy with this. And there's still quite a lot of research in paranormal because uh, the book concept, if I were to put it simply, if it's paranormal state and supernatural got together and had a baby and you tossed in a little film noir detective crime drama, uh, you, you get a little bit of, of the world uh, that is the Shadow Side series. And on top of that, I've been slowly compiling a few more stories for Haunting Experiences too. Um, but one of the reasons I've been fairly slow with that is I, I don't want to just, you know, make up... I don't want inferior tales. I want to be able to pick up um, different experiences, some of which I can't tell what it, what's happened to me over the past 10 years, especially with the TV show, um, and really have genuine but also genuinely compelling things for that, uh, for that book. And then with writing fiction, I mean, obviously, you still have to have the research. You still have to have that knowledge base to be able to craft these stories effectively. But do you find that that can be a little bit more freeing, the fact that you can play around in that world a little bit more? You know, I have never done, outside of the Dictionary of Demons, so much research for any book beyond the, the, the fiction. I mean, the Dictionary of Demons, uh, digging through Latin manuscripts and reading, God help me, Latin in, in block German print from like the 16th century. That was, that was a, a pain in the posterior. <laughs> but with, uh, with fiction, especially the genre that I'm writing in, it's urban fantasy, uh, which is to say it's, it's this world, it's modern day, and it just also happens to have the paranormal and magic and other aspects of, in it. But it needs to have that verisimilitude. Uh, so, you know, it's set in a real city, Cleveland. Uh, it's set in real time, and it has all of our history. So if I have a character who is a Vietnam vet, I now need to go and research everything that would come into play in the story uh, about that person's history as someone who fought over in Vietnam. Um, you know, his social attitudes, his... Uh, and just there's, there's so much, so much to research. It's actually... Um, I wanted to challenge myself, and it's why I moved into fiction, and who oh boy, <laughs> I, I have gotten my wish. Well, and not only that, but you get to take all that research and then craft, you have to craft characters and story and all that around it. I'm always fascinated when people can, can work, you know, real life themes and, and, and actual research into fictional works because you're, you're basically, you're, you're having to serve two masters at one time, and it's, uh, it's quite a challenge, I'm sure. Well, there's, there's a little bit of fan service because I know people who know me um, and who read my stuff read have read mainly the nonfiction, and so they're going to come to that, or or they saw me on Paranormal State, so they're coming to anything that I'm doing with some expectations of that. So to be able to draw little bits and and fan service nods to different things that I've done uh, is is part of my goal. Uh, sometimes that makes the the weaving together of the the story and the plot. Uh, a little more challenging, but it's a fun challenge. Uh, and, and just, you know, tiny Easter eggs woven throughout it, too. Uh, making them so that they're, they're seamless and not obvious and not awkward. That's after the trick. 
Nice. Well, we'll talk more about that and, and more of your work coming up in the next hour after our break for the network news. More with our guest, Michelle Boulanger, coming up. And you can go to her website, michellebelanger.com. We have it up on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. And, uh, and all her Twitter information, everything's up there. So if you would like to check that out during the break, please feel free to do so. Uh, and also, you can go to our website, SpookySouthCoast.com, anytime to find out about any of our guests. And if you are listening to the show, I know some people on Twitter are saying, you know, they're, they're loving the show. It's always on podcast, too. All you have to do is just go to iTunes or wherever you find podcasts, and you can find the show in its entirety. Uh, so we'll be back coming up in just a bit with more with Michelle. We'll also take your calls as well if you would like to ask any questions. 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. You spooky TV folks will get to see that on your screen. And it's also right up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well, should you need the number at any time. And, of course, tweeting about it using the hashtag. Tag Spooky Live, and we'll we'll see it we'll see it come right through on our Twitter feed and also on the Spooky TV feed as well. But we are going to take a break now for the news. And when we come back, more on the other side. It's Spooky South Coast here on WBSM. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. It is Spooky South Coast, and we are talking with tonight's guest, Michelle Boulanger. And you can check out her website, michelleboulanger.com. And uh, we have everything up on the screen on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. But it's kind of fitting, Michelle, that in the first hour we were talking a little bit about the nature of evil and, and, and how these things can rear their ugly head because... As we were talking about it, I get the news coming through that uh, the Antichrist may be on the way. Miley Cyrus is having a baby. Oh, my goodness. With Patrick Schwarzenegger. What? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Patrick Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they've been dating for a little while here, and now she's pregnant. And uh, Oh, my God. this It's going to come out with a little 666 on its head. I... Yeah. So <laughs> I have no words. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, we'll see. There'll be a whole show that we can go uh, talk just about that because uh, who knows what's going to happen there. But there you go. I mean, just a little bit of strange and unusual. We don't even have to have. We usually we do a, a new segment each week that we call the Week and Weird, where we talk about three or four different strange stories of the week. We could have just filled that whole segment just talking about Miley Cyrus having a baby. That's weird enough. Seriously. Things in the paranormal, demons, things that go bump in the night, that stuff does not terrify me. Many of the things I see in pop culture among celebrities like that, that stuff is terrifying. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm new to the world here now uh, with... You being involved with Paranormal State, you've seen it for a couple of years now, and, and I've paid attention to it a little bit on the periphery, but it wasn't until I started working on Ghost Stalkers that I started to see exactly what goes on with some of the people who are, are fans of this. And these these are people who are claiming that they're in the, the paranormal field, but in actuality, all they're doing is they're fans of a television show, and, and I see some of the things that they come up with and some of the ways that they react, and it kind of makes me worried. <laughs> it makes me worried that these are the people that are out there claiming to be doing research, but all they're really trying to do is, like, get Zach to retweet them. <laughs> oh. 
Well, the thing about fandoms is it's kind of like any other community. There are there are fans I have who I, I count as friends. Mm-hmm. There are fans who definitely have their feet on the ground um, while their heads might occasionally be in the clouds or at least certainly uh, crushing on things. And then there's always that special bunch. And, and, and there's that special bunch everywhere. Uh, but in fandoms, you get some really colorful people not just in the paranormal pretty much everywhere right uh and i mean i i also uh some of the big events that i i go to like dragon con is is very much a, a fandom convention of of the intersection of all sorts of weird aspects of pop culture from the paranormal to people who play you know role-playing games to uh fans of like battlestar galactica star wars and every other possible bit of of pop culture uh stuff that you could imagine and well, humanity, humanity really straddles many extremes. <laughs> I think that's the simplest way to put that. But the good part about it is having, you know, pop culture paying attention to the world of the paranormal is helping with the research and it's helping us to, you know, it's great when, you know, you put out a book and you know that it's going to be successful because it's a topic that people are interested in now. So that's that's a, a nice part of it. But the real key is that people are comfortable enough to be talking about it and paying attention to it enough that we can get more research done, that we can get into places that we might not have gotten into before, that we can collect stories that we might not have, uh, people might not have shared with us in the past. So it actually opens the doors more to get closer to finding answers. So it's beneficial for us that, you know, the paranormal is quote unquote cool with a lot of people because it's always been cool to us. And the more people that want to jump into this party, the better the party will be. I agree with that. Some people voiced a concern that the, the television aspect of the paranormal, the, the, the televised popularity of it, trivializes it somehow. Um, and certainly there is a wide range of approaches that we get to see in the various programs, um, some which are a little more merry-making and some of which are a little more serious. But at the end of the day, the most important thing about that media attention is exactly what you said, which is we can now have conversations about it. Uh, and this was a topic that, you know, it waxes and wanes in the public opinion uh, for how acceptable it is to talk about and how serious it is as a topic to research. Uh, but I think the best benefit of having the widespread uh, media attention to the paranormal currently is that more and more ordinary people are less afraid to talk about experiences. And whether or not we accept that those experiences genuinely involve ghosts and the survival of the dead or, or however you may interpret it, we're never going to understand that stuff unless we gather all the data and compare it and study it and do so in an atmosphere as as with communication as open as possible. When you are collecting stories from people, when you're hearing things from people, it also helps when they have a little bit of a knowledge base themselves uh, to, to kind of have an idea of what these experiences are. As opposed, it, it, At least it makes them more comfortable to, to know what it is that might be happening to them. You know, before... Somebody might have picked up a, a strange sound on, on, on the baby monitor or, or, or captured something on an audio recording and not had any kind of words to describe it, not had any kind of reference base. Uh, but now I'm sure people contact you and say, hey, I, you know, I'm not a paranormal researcher, but I think I caught an EVP. So mm-hmm. the fact that, it's that, that knowledge is kind of bleeding into pop culture a little bit uh, only helps us because it, it makes people a little bit more hyper aware of what's happening to them. 
to having to, to have uh, a common parlance, uh, a language that we can all use, is both a blessing and a curse because some of the words become like the only word somebody will seize on. I don't, I've already gone over my my favorite, least favorite, which is, is demon. Um, because people really kind of jump on that one again because it gets a lot of immediate attention, and it gets the attention that it does because it's it's astounding and titillating and oh heavens and of course it makes really good blockbuster movies, uh, but we can't we can't have that dialogue we can't have the communication without those words so as much as it's sometimes difficult uh, to work around the the bias and the baggage that we inevitably attach to many of them, uh, we we wouldn't get very far if we didn't also have them, um, EVP and EMF meters and all the, all the lot of it. When and, and of course, you, as you said, you know, demon not being a, a term that you like to, to have thrown around loosely, uh, but you've said that you have had encounters with things that you think might have been truly demonic. Things that, for lack of any better term, um, in all of the studying that I have done, and I am actually one of the, the only folks I know who's active in the paranormal community who, in, in my college studies, I took, a col- I took a college course on demonology. My college was a Jesuit um, Catholic university, part of my degrees in comparative religious studies. Uh, so I, I understand the, the notion of theodicy as well as um, people's experiential ideas of what demons are. My definition of something that I will attribute the demon name to is, does the entity, is it an intelligent entity? Does it seem to be um, self-aware, malevolent, um, and specifically malevolent toward people? Um, And if it is something that is a self-aware, intelligent entity that is malevolent toward people, I will hesitantly give it the demon label because that's really what... All of the, the scripture and the pre-biblical writings describing these entities, that's what they were talking about when that word came up. And, and in terms of it being, you know, uh, in any kind of arm of, of the devil, any kind of uh, agent of a centralized evil, uh, does that seem to be something that you see in, in these beings and these entities? Is, is there some sort of, uh, you know, master control for these things, or are they operating under their own, under their own uh, auspices? I find it difficult to attribute a single worldview, the idea that there's, you know, a heaven or a hell or a damnation, redemption um, schema, and um, I leave that to the theologians who want to interpret what's going on. Um, the only interpretation I'm willing to ever engage in is, is it something that seems to be bigger than, than people? Is it, is it on an order that is, it's a non-human entity, it's a highly intelligent entity, and it's a malicious, malevolent force? And past that, I really try not to get too entangled in it because we have so many opinions, and I think those opinions and the fervor with which many people hold them often obscure their ability to, in an unbiased fashion, assess what they're actually perceiving, if that makes any sense to you. No, absolutely. So when when you're putting together a book like The Dictionary of Demons, you're taking uh, a lot of the 
the definitions and the names and, 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 the, and the tags that we as, as, as mankind have put on these things. And it might necessarily not be your view, but you're just kind of collecting uh, the way that other people have perceived these, these things over the years. My goal with that book was to compile as much of the scholarly research as possible and put it in a place for people who had an interest in demons for one reason or another. Um, and I didn't want to judge where they were coming to the concept of demon from at, at all. I just wanted to give them the background of, you know, what are these things? Uh, what has, what role has the word demon, the concept of, of demonology played in uh, Western civilization primarily? Uh, and in the occult, and uh, as it spreads into the idea of the paranormal, exorcism, and all of that, uh, which meant that I had to start with a firm basis in Judeo-Christian uh, mythology, but also uh, to the roots of the cultures that influenced them, uh, Sumer, Babylon, Akkad, primarily, although there's a lot of stuff that gets um, kind of borrowed. Uh, Christianity and Judaism are what are called syncretic faith, which is to say every culture and every belief they came into contact with, they borrowed a little bit from. Uh, it can be said everybody's belief system is syncretic. We all influence one another. Um, and over time, we forget what we borrowed from whom, and it becomes such canon uh, that when we're faced with trying to under understand what a, a demon actually is, when we use that word here and now, uh, without having the ability to go traipsing through, you know, really, really obscure texts in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Uh, oh, goodness, what else was I reading? Uh, French and Italian and Spanish and German um, had help with the Hebrew because, heaven, I can't tell my yod from anything else. Um, and I had help with the Greek. The Latin I can at least handle and all the rest. Unless you have access to all of that stuff and you go reading through all of it, so I wanted, to, I wanted to basically take a book that gave people the cliff notes mm -hmm. of all of that and then let them decide for themselves. But now the, I mean, I guess too, this is something that people in other media encounter. You know, when when people decide to blame violent movies or or uh, violent video games for the way that people act, and they say, "Well, hey, we're just making, uh, you know, we're just putting out these things." You know, however it affects people is their own problem. Do you worry then that there are people who are, you know, watching Paranormal State, grabbing the Dictionary of Demons, and heading out into the field, saying, "Okay, now I'm a demonologist and I'm ready to go up against these forces of evil." Well, people were kind of already doing that uh, <laughs> as it was with less useful texts, if I may be so bold. Uh, so since there was an interest, I, I felt that having looked at what was out there, um, any of the, the scholarly stuff is usually out of people's reach um, or out of print. Uh, so trying to put it in a place and put it all together in, in one book. And since names are such a big deal, uh, especially with the concept of the demonic. Uh, the concept from the book started with a conversation with Father Bob. Um, and anybody who's watched Paranormal State, they know that, you know, the, the name is a really big deal. And in that first season episode where there's that, you know, boom, demon that, that Ryan had his experiences with, they, they don't even want to say it um, on on the screen. And that, that built up such... Such a fear of the names when at the very core, it, for, for the Christian fans, it probably 
is probably encountered the story of the Gerasene demoniac. Um, it's the story from which we get the word, I am, or the, the phrase, I am legion, so we are many, where Jesus encounters this guy and he's got demons in him, yada, yada, yada. And one of the first things Jesus asks of the guy is, not the man, but of the demons, what is their name? It's really important because saying the name does have a current belief that that will somehow gather that being's attention and draw it to the person who has said it. But at the very core of Western ideas of demonology, exorcism, and possession, the name gives you power to compel, to summon, to bind, and to exercise and dispel. So to, to treat the name with this holy dread actually puts everybody at a disadvantage. So I really wanted to convey the notion that knowledge is power, and the more educated we are about any of the things we're delving into, the better we put ourselves in a position to deal with it. But you mentioned a lot of the Western approach to this and a lot of the Judeo-Christian belief of it. But the idea of demons and, and, and having to exercise demons goes well before that. And you're actually one of the very few people that have, are actually knowledgeable and have written a book about Sumerian exorcism. Yes, and it's the idea of, of evil spirits, uh, of things that are bigger and badder than humanity, um, that are not, not necessarily physical beings, but are definitely out to get us. That's, that's a worldwide, worldwide thing. You will find it in, in myth and folklore across the world. Um, one of the reasons I narrowed the scope for the Dictionary of Demons is, quite frankly, I could probably spend a lifetime just cataloging all of the stuff. Um, and it would be volumes upon volumes of, of books, of humans' concepts of what evil spirits and demons are. Uh, and I really, I didn't want to spend that much time on it, <laughs> frankly. I may come back to it, um, but so, so I narrowed it. But you can't delve into the, the Western civilization idea of demons and demonology without going, basically without the trail leading you to um, the cradle of Western civilization, the Tigris and Euphrates, the land between the rivers, Mesopotamia, um, which gives us the culture of Sumer, Babylon, and Akkad. And that concept that, that I mentioned from the, the New Testament of, of Jesus asking the name of the demon and the way in which he drives the demon out into a herd of swine that then go running over a cliff to their death, that harkens, and, and most people would never know this, it harkens directly back to the methods of exorcism that were used in Sumer and Babylon um, prior to Jesus' day but would have been recognizable to his peers at the time. Um, and so there's this thread of tradition or mythology or folklore or whatever you want to interpret it as, but certainly a thread that goes all the way back to Sumer and Babylon in what a demon is, what it does to people, and how we get rid of them, and especially the power of the name. Well, I mean, just looking over the, some of the information on Amazon about the Sumerian exorcism book, I want to pick that up because I'm I'm fascinated in the in going beyond the story. You know, like I I love the look on people's faces when you explain to them that Jesus wasn't the first Jesus. You know, there were other messiahs before him, and, uh, and people, what, what are you talking about? Well, there was the same story was told again and again. There were other arcs before Noah's. There were other deluges before that one. You know, and, and people are just uh, fascinated by this, and, and I always have been. 
but I'm like that with everything, you know? And it sounds like you're very much the same way, Michelle, where if I get into something, I have to go all the way back to the beginning. I can't just jump into watching a television show. I have to start on episode one, which, by the way, has really screwed me over trying to watch Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all the way back to 1963 here, trying to get uh, caught up with everybody. Did you see this week's episode? No, I'm still stuck in 1965, but I'll get there eventually. But, I mean, that's, that's got to be something that is, is key for you as a researcher is to, to start at the beginning. You know, nobody wants to start in the, in the middle and have to work their way back. You want to go forward with the lessons learned. And, and, and so to be able to go this far back into all of this probably brings to light a lot of things that other people just don't see. It's something I find regrettable about our culture, and it's a, it's a symptom that we, we encounter in the, in the paranormal community, too, where people get into it. Um, you know, it was, it, for some people it's a fad, for some people it becomes a passion, for some people it becomes the, you know, the way of their, their life. But they may never dig deep enough to see what people were doing in the 20s that wasn't what we would call paranormal investigation as we understand it, but is definitely part of the roots of what we're doing, the spiritualist movement before that, uh, the stuff in the 1890s and onward, and then and just going even further back to, uh, oh, there were, before we had paranormal investigation, we often had clergymen like Dom Augustine Calmet uh, writing in, oh God, my discalculator will, will screw me with this, but I think it's the 1500s, me and numbers don't necessarily, numbers don't stick in my head, ask me to recite anything word for word and it's fine. But anyway, Dom and Dustin Calmet, who his way of investigating was to just get people's accounts and to write them down. And you have multiple clergy like him, uh, Father Sinistrari, who was writing about the incubus and succubus demons. Um, and at least for me, it's, you can't understand where you are in any area of knowledge or even any hobby without taking a moment to understand where you have been, where it comes from, what its roots are, and what has influenced all the people who are active in the field that you are in right now. It amazes me that people are into it and they can't even go... You know, just a, a couple of generations back. You know, the, there's so many people that think the paranormal research started with, you know, Jason and Grant. And then, <laughs> you know, the, then they hear about the Warrens and like, okay, well, then it started with the Warrens. And then maybe they find out about Hans Holzer. All right, it started with him. Exactly. That, that, that one was a pet peeve that I wanted to bring up, but I didn't want to be offensive. But, like, the ones who are, like, ghost hunters are totally Jason and Grant. And I'm like, well, Hans Holzer. Right. If, if you don't know where that comes from. Harry and Price. Just, oh. It makes me a little crazy. That's. I was telling the story the other night uh, while we were at Lizzie Borden's that, you know, I saw everybody one day, you know, putting up pictures of, uh, there's a whole, you know, ghost hunter, uh, ghost adventures versus ghost stalkers thing going on online. And, and they were putting up pictures of Zach and, you know, talking about how he started a lot of this stuff that we see. And, this, you know, he, he was like one of the innovators of paranormal research. And I put out a picture of Harry Price. I said, if you want to idolize somebody, idolize Harry Price because he's the guy that made the paranormal cool. He's the guy that made it interesting and made it a media event. And so, he, you know, as much as you want to say all this stuff, you, you want to go back to Jason and Grant, you want to go back to Hans Holzer, you want to go back to Long John Nebel, whoever it is that you might want to be is bring this into Houdini. Price was that guy. What, yeah, Houdini. I, I really think that we... From the other side of it, yeah, Houdini. Um, he was a little... Oh, he was a little bit in the James Randi camp, um, right. as we would identify it now, but that's, that's not a bad thing. Uh, you know, he saw 
there was this this profusion of, of spiritualists and, and mediums, and it, it was a cra- I mean, it was a crazy that we a craze that we can't necessarily even relate to, like the impact that it had from the Fox sisters back at Hydesville in the 1840s, and it, it took. The, uh, the, the U.S. and the English-speaking European world, and that it spilled in it, took it by storm. And Houdini, who knew how to trick people um, with prestidigitation and, and saw some of these, and he wanted to believe, but was so offended when it was quite obvious to him that there were certainly people who were faking it, who were just selling their magic tricks as mediumship. Uh, and I think it is essential to have people like Houdini. I think we absolutely have to have people in the paranormal community who work in the spirit of Houdini because we also certainly have people who work in the spirit of the shysters from back then. Not every medium is genuine. Uh, Not every person who's involved in the community is involved for the greater good. Uh, too many of them are looking at the uh, you know the possibility of dollar signs and and personal attention and personal glory and and that can have a direct taint on on the research that you do that can that can put a smear on things that uh, you can't recover from. Well, it certainly makes it harder for anybody whose real goal is to understand stuff. It, it muddies the water for all of us, uh, and it's just it would be naive to go into any aspect of human knowledge, assuming that everybody is there for the greater good of all. And, and, and purely, you know, this, this ivory tower notion of we, we're all going to work together and learn how this, how this works. Uh, inevitably, ego gets involved, um, and it just, we, we need more Houdinis. Well, we, we live in a town, uh, the three of us, that's pretty much, you know, just just about at the beginning of Cape Cod. And uh, there's a, a village within our town by the name of Onset. And when I was younger, I was looking through, uh, you know, the anybody that is into this topic knows the 100s and the Dewey Decimal System. That was the place that you went to when you went to the library because that's where you would find all the Time Life books and all the, all the Hans Holzer books and er- everything that you would want to ner- learn about this topic. So I was in the library and going through the titles, and there is a book on the shelf called The Vampires of Onset, a book about the the village in our town called The Vampires of Onset. And I figured it was going to be you know, the traditional definition of vampires. And when I started reading it, it was about the spiritualist movement. There was a spiritualist camp. That's how Onset was founded. And it was the second biggest one in the country behind Lilydale. And it was the way that the uh, media and and the non-believers were portraying the spiritualists that were rife throughout this book. And it's amazing that one publication basically shut down an entire town with, you know, just from the naysayers and from from the the people coming at it from a, a skeptical and, and a disproving standpoint, were able to pretty much shut down everything that had been going on there for for a dozen years. You're close to New Bedford. Oh, we are. We're actually broadcasting out of uh, Fairhaven, one town over. That is where my grandfather was from. Really? He's buried there, actually. Wow, a small world. <laughs> it is. When you're like Cape Cod, oh, yep, yep, that's. Well, then you're from. Uh, yeah, we we live in Wareham, which is just a couple towns over from New Bedford. Huh. So it, interesting and small world, very small world. So if you ever come out this way, we can take you to some local haunts, and then we can take you to the. They still have the the wigwam yeah. as part of the spiritualist camp. There's still there still is a, a vibrant spiritualism community there. Uh, there's a spiritualist church uh, that's uh, always you know 
having different types of events going on. So it's still uh, it's still thriving here in this area, but not like it once was. But and, I wonder and, if that's what my, my aunt Jean, my grandfather talked about his sister reading tea leaves and doing some other stuff, and that that was kind of a, a thing, and that people would come and, and ask her questions. And I guess his mother, Victoria, as well. That side of my family is... I couldn't write a fiction novel about that side of my family. It would not be believable, and fiction actually needs to have a certain <laughs> level of believability. That, that, that's my favorite kind of story, though, the ones that you'll, nobody would ever believe. Those are the best kind. Well, and of course, seeing that title, that uh, The Vampires of Onset, that leads me to, to my next area of discussion with you, and that would be actual vampirism. And that's something that you've written about. That's something that you're very known for. You see a lot of different television specials. You know, we always see uh, you being involved with some of these productions. And I didn't realize, you know, when I was younger and I was growing up, I thought a vampire was a mythological creature, a, 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 a part of folklore, a part of our... Uh, you know what we were talking about before with our need to have a boogeyman with the need to have uh, somebody who we can point at and say alright that's what's bad uh, but I, did, I didn't realize that not only do they exist but they're not evil well there are three categories of vampires that I write about and am an expert on and have been uh, resourced for my expertise on and that is the vampire of folklore who is absolutely just a, a, a boogeyman a mythological being mm-hmm. there's the vampire of fiction um, who has his roots in the folklore, but has very much been retooled through the eyes of each person who picks him up and, and, and tells them, but is strangely twined uh, through history, especially in British literature, with, with historical figures and the influence of the writer's own involvement in the occult, or lack thereof. And then there are there's the modern vampire community, which is uh, a very different animal, certainly from uh, the folklore and certainly from Dracula and Lestat and anything that you'd see on True Blood. Uh, although there again, some of the stuff starts to cross and blur with pop culture because uh, citing True Blood, they made an effort to do research within the modern vampire community to portray certain tropes and, and styles. Uh, there's a nod to uh, my outfit on a music video you know, in the very opening when you see um, Pam uh, and I did some work with them for uh, the beginning of that show with uh, True Blood Lines and their research into just sort of where the, the fiction, the folklore and everything straddles the, the modern day but the word vampire um, I came upon it as the concept of a real living being in my research um, primarily in 19th century and early 20th century occultism uh, the word psychic vampire described a certain type of person who was psychic and sensitive, but also had this, this ability. And it's usually portrayed in the early literature as a very negative capacity that a person has that they use to prey upon others. They, they take vital force, life energy from those around them and then prey upon them. So most of the stuff that I was originally reading was people talking about how to protect yourself from people like this. Uh, the problem was, is when I was reading that, I was trying to find if there were other people who had um, experiences similar to mine. Uh, as I'd said in the first hour, one thing I learned early on uh, with my very peculiar family of many flavors of psychic was not everybody had the same 
abilities, um, that there was a continuum of abilities for people who had these extraordinary abilities. And mine, I, I seem to have rolled snake eyes. Um, what, what people get to see me do on Paranormal State um, is only a small portion of what my, my actual ability is. I have this sensitivity, um, or at least I believe that I do, um, and I, my experiences have to my satisfaction borne this out, um, to, to pick up the the, the energy that people leave behind, um, not just as, as, as dead spirits, um, spirits of the dead, but the living as well, the emotional energy. I think of it like um, like fingerprints. You know, everywhere we go, everything that we touch, we, we leave a slight resonance, a slight imprint of, of who we are, intense things that we're feeling in that moment. Uh, and I picked up on fairly early that... I wasn't just picking this up. I wasn't just reading it off of people. There was something significant in my interaction with it. I could harness it, direct it, use it to heal others, but also to take it in actively and heal myself. And I wanted to understand what the heck that was. And if it was, if there was a precedent for the ability or if it was just, you know, some psychosomatic thing that I was convincing myself of. And a lot of my early studies particularly in energy work, psychic phenomenon, and the occult were directed toward the end of having a better grasp on my, my particular experience of the word psychic vampire and how I felt it probably applied to me. See, my interactions with, and, and I've learned about you know, psychic vampires through reading your work and, and some of the work of others, but my feeling had always been that it was uh, it was somebody who was taking from you uh, and, and, and oftentimes not even realizing that they were, but they were taking that energy from you. But you're talking about being able to, you know, give and receive and to do so willingly and to, to, to be able to use it for, for healing, whether it be healing someone else or healing yourself. And, and I see, I always had like a negative correlation to it. So that's what fascinated me about your work to realize that it, it can be a positive. There is certainly a negative correlation with it for people who don't realize what they're doing. Um, if you've got somebody who has the capacity to, to reach out, connect to, and take this energy, they're simply going to act on instinct. They're, they're never going to become conscious about what they're doing, and therefore, w without conscious awareness, they cannot make a conscious choice um, to either do it or not to do it. And that that was a big a big inspiration for me to write the books that I did at the time that I did uh, to try to make people who may have this capacity become aware that it exists, that it doesn't always have to be negative, and that they can choose, um, but then ultimately to leave the choice up to them, uh, because I don't particularly like the concept of, of toiling unfairly under other people's uh, moral and ethical uh, ideas. As much as I am also the, the main author of one of the widest, um, wide, more, uh, it, it's, it's a rule of, of ethical guidelines called the Black Veil, um, and it's something that the, the vampire community kind of has circulated at this point around the globe. It's a little insane. Um, and it's fairly common sense. Don't unfairly prey upon people, is kind of what it boils down to. 
But sometimes it's common sense, but it still helps to have it written down for the, you know, to, to remind people that a lot of stuff that we learn in the Bible is pretty common sense too, you know, like, but it helps to have something there to back it up. So, uh, if there is something that they can utilize for that, then all the better. It, it seemed, it seemed like it needed to be said, um, at the time that, that all of this was coming together. I mean, the, the vampire community as, as such didn't exist probably didn't exist 30 years ago, certainly didn't exist 40 years ago. There were certainly um, isolated groups um, and, and individuals who identified uh, their capacity to be vampiric. Uh, some of them did so in um, what I perceive to be ethically responsible ways. Some people developed it into a, a kind of predatory spirituality where they realized, hey, I can do this stuff to people, and most of them have no way to defend themselves against it. And, mm-hmm. That makes me feel powerful. Ergo, I'm going to do it because I can. Uh, where, uh, when it comes down to me, just because you can doesn't always mean that you should. Uh, and as it applies to me, yes, the, the psychic vampirism absolutely goes hand in hand with all of my psychic abilities that people have seen um, on Paranormal State. Uh, I never made an effort to sweep that under the rug uh, and just, you know, operate it as I was. Now, Sometimes, if the word psychic vampire came up on the show, that didn't always make it to the, the final cut because, frankly, the, the producers just didn't think people would understand what the word meant. Right. Um, because you say vampire, and of course, you're going to think Dracula and capes and cloaks and fangs and all the rest of it. And as much as I am a goth at heart, and I certainly do enjoy dressing up, uh, I, I am not Lestat. I, I am not Dracula. And never had any uh, notion that I was going to be like uh, you know, undead. Uh, I'm fairly certain a stake in the heart will still ruin my day, so I'd rather not try that just to <laughs> right. prove it or disprove it. Uh, but if somebody wants to throw holy water on you, you're fine with that, right? That that, oh, no. that, I, that actually happened in college. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes, I at, at at the dinner table among the honor students, we would uh, we had a little corner to ourselves, and one of the honor, other honor students. Uh, stood up at the dinner table, declared himself the right hand of Archangel Michael, sort of God, and said to everybody else that he was going to smite the evil among us, and then doused me with holy water. And followed it up with, and I kid you not, getting right up into my face going, burn, burn it. Moniz, I didn't know that you guys knew each other before this. I thought this was the first Hardly. time you talked. <laughs> Hardly. So, oh, so... My response was, it's cold, it's wet, and you're an idiot. At which point he fled. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, uh, but just goes to show, you know, people, they, they, they get so firm in their beliefs that, uh, you know, ration, rational thinking doesn't always come through. Uh, but you- Well, it, it's why I say words are, words are problematic. Words come with baggage. Words, you, you say a word like vampire, and there's all of this stuff that most people bring to that word. Um, and you, know, you say demon, you say ghost. Everybody has a, a fairly entrenched and often reinforced by the media concept of what that means. Hung up on nomenclature. Yep. 
Well, we do have a couple of questions coming in uh, regarding the, this topic uh, through Twitter, and you can tweet, tweet your questions out to us using the hashtag SpookyLive, or you can call in 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 for questions for our guest, Michelle Boulanger. There's a question here from uh, 8chan Up on Twitter and wants to know what you think about the infernal ONA vampirism emerging. I try not to judge anybody's interpretation of of this. At this point, the vampire community particularly, the word vampire means a different thing to different people. Um, and at the end of the day, as long as nobody's doing anything egregiously illegal or harmful to themselves or others without permission, uh, I will add that because some people, well, we won't even get into that aspect of the world. I have no opinion either way. Uh, well, there are uh, there are some ahead. people, uh, and this, this is a, a question uh, that I'm sure a lot of people out there have about vampirism. There are people who are do, who do engage in blood drinking, which yes, uh, is are. I don't Absolutely. understand why in this day and age anybody would would do that, but people do, and uh, and, and people eat lutefisk. That's true, but uh, it is it is a part of the community. It's probably not as big of a part of the community as the psychic aspect, I would think. Well, it's harder to get solid numbers on that because, of course, not everybody is going to be willing to be very open about whether or not they engage in drinking blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's there, There's a group down in Atlanta, the Atlanta Vampire Alliance, um, spearheaded by my friend Murticus, who... They, they do a lot of data gathering um, with these fairly extensive surveys, and we're not talking just like, you know, click a few things off on, online. We're talking people who are involved in creating surveys for you know, psych departments at like Emory and stuff in their day jobs, helps to put extensive surveys together to get demographics for uh, the people who identify as members of the vampire community. Uh, and it's, there's the people who drink blood, there's the people who take vital energy and identify as psychic vampires, and then there are people who kind of fall in the middle. Um, it's, it's a term that is what was new to me when it, it became a thing called hybrid, some people who feel that they're taking energy, but they sometimes also drink blood. And in this day and age, the, the idea of blood drinking seems fairly fairly taboo, mm-hmm. and you, you got to wonder with bloodborne diseases. The first thing to understand about sanguine vampires or blood drinkers is it's really hard to be someone who just goes... You don't have someone who's doing this with people against their permission because those people end up in jail. Right. (laughs) End of discussion. So (laughs) if they are taking blood from other people, it is with consent. Um, And as a result, it is usually done um, in fairly unromantic and very medical ways um, with as much safety as possible. with, of course, a side note that there's no guarantee for it ever to be 100% safe. Some of the people who drink blood believe that they are, that they have a physical need for the, the substance of blood itself, that it's kind of like self-medicating with blood, that there's something that they need to maintain their health and well-being that they get only from small amounts of human blood. And, of course, that's, Something that is yet to be proved, um, and I think it would be fairly difficult to find a science a group of scientists who'd be willing to try to prove it, at least at this point in time. It would be fascinating if they would. 
Uh, and then there are blood drinkers who believe that, that the blood is more a token, um, a, a symbol, or, or the carrier of the energy, the vital energy that they would be taking. And it's the same sort of stuff that a psychic vampire is taking just without all the fuss. Yeah, it's just more of a more of a vessel, more of a, a symbol of that. But I can tell you, I've cut my finger and and like you know just kind of like sucked on the cut a little bit to get the bleeding to stop. And the taste of my own blood turns my stomach, so I couldn't imagine, you know, sharing it with somebody else and and, and going in that direction. But you've mentioned it a few times, and, and and I think that's at least I haven't done nearly as much research as you, but I look at it from the outside, thinking that that's a big part of it. The romanticism of the vampires, the intimacy of what's involved, I think plays into it for a lot of people, and that becomes part of it more than anything. The fact that it's a way to make a connection that you, there's really no other way to make. Certainly, the, the fictional portrayal of the vampire has reinforced an archetype that didn't start off in the folklore. Vampire folklore, you know, they're mainly like red-faced, bloated corpses of peasants, uh, at least if you're talking about the Eastern European vampire, where, where most of us identify the roots of the vampire. Uh, they, they weren't sleek, felt, charismatic couts. That happened when they kind of picked up the, con- the, the concept of these hungry dead, um, which variously in folklore, they were either risen corpses or they were... These nebulous beings that weren't necessarily physical, but were nevertheless tied to the physical remains in the grave, but would still send themselves forth at night um, and somehow enter the house, even if the doors were locked or through the windows, uh, and then lay over someone as they slept and, and press them to the bed and take something vital from them. It wasn't always agreed upon as being blood. Um, when corpses were exhumed that were suspected of being vampires in, in, um, during the crazes of, of, of actual vampire attacks, which gives us the folklore vampire, they concluded that blood was being taken because they would usually see the corpse in the coffin with blood around it, or at least what they presumed to be blood. Um, and, and honestly, if Grissom from CSI could go back in time and explain to them a little bit about contagion and how a body decays, there wouldn't have been any fuss anyway. Uh, it, it, it was just people who didn't understand how these things worked. Right. Again, making up, making up the story. But those stories got into the papers and got into uh, the hands, especially of, of Britain. And uh, there's like, ooh, you know, it was very titillating to people. It's like there's, there's these horrible, you know, charnel house breast monsters that are preying off of people. And so, of course, um, as, as we do now, uh, writers of the fiction picked it up and took the parts that were most intriguing, added parts that made them even racier and more intriguing. I mean, from the folklore, there was a belief that um, oftentimes the vampires would come back to their spouses um, and their loved ones, and more than a few times they were believed to exhaust their spouses to death, not merely by feeding on them, but by copulating with them all night long. So you can understand what a fiction writer um, in the uh, you know the, the late 1700s and the early 1800s would do with that in a penny dreadful. Absolutely, and and uh, you know I've I've talked to people who have analyzed uh, you know Stoker's Dracula as being essentially just a woman having an affair. <laughs> yeah. and, and and that's what it's the story of. It's the story of a woman cheating on her on her fiance and and 
blaming it for a supernatural cause. And it, it definitely seems to have a lot of that in history. And it seems to have a lot of uh, correlation with anything that's taboo. I mean, we have Mercy Brown here, uh, not that far from here, which was simply just somebody who was sick. It was yeah, also supposedly the impetus for one of the impetuses for Bram Stoker to write Dracula, because he, he had yeah, most, a collection of her uh, her story. Most of the vampire cases that occurred in the United States were tied with tuberculosis, correct? Mm-hmm. Which Mercy Brown definitely fits into that. And uh, again, it goes along with um, and the folkloric vampire is tied with contagion. Um, and then uh, a misunderstanding of what happens um, post-mortem. And, and, but, but even that concept of contagion, I mean, if you think about the 70s and the 80s, in, in our own epoch, when, when vampires became, again, really compelling, that, that essence of contagion that is inherent in the archetype, especially in the 80s with the AIDS, AIDS scare, um, with the AIDS pandemic, you know, everybody was, was, had HIV. It was suddenly this terrifying thing, and it's very wrapped up in intimacy. And the vampire became popular as a way of simultaneously expressing our, our fear of that, um, but also sort of romanticizing it, creating a, a little bit of a, a contagion Superman, a being who was able to transcend um, and, and engage in all of the taboo practices or the practices that had suddenly become taboo because they were far too risky. I mean, there's, there's reasons why so many of Anne Rice's vampires are largely male and all very, very okay with one another. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and it certainly fits into that. Uh, one question that I want to ask from Twitter uh, before we let you go, Michelle, is uh, is Paul wants to know, have you ever encountered an entity that made you question your research? Puck wedges. <laughs> I had never heard of puck wedges until I was out in Cape Cod. And I'm still trying um, doggedly to see whether or not there's uh, a connection because there's so much that's similar with Pukwudgies and certain um, Celtic ideas of, of fairies and mischievous spirits, even to the point where the, the Puck, they, they have a, a sort of a similar, and it's probably a misleading linguistic connection. Um, but, but yeah, I, the most important thing about if you really want to be a researcher, prepare to question your research. Prepare mm-hmm. to learn something new. Um, and, and never be so invested in what you think you believe that you're not willing to revise it when you encounter something that, that leaves you gobsmacked for the fact that it exists. Especially when Ryan's telling us to, to feed them strawberries from the strawberry bushes or whatever that <laughs> whatever that stuff was. But uh, I, I, I guess maybe before before we leave, uh, before we let you go, I, I will ask you the one question. Some very strange things have been happening with, with Ryan over the last few months and uh, with with all the stuff that was going on. But just, you know, to clear the air a little bit, and, and, and you spoke about this publicly, you put stuff up online about it, you know, you weren't involved in any of that stuff that was going on with the events that were supposed to take place that never did. You were kind of just on the outside looking in. You had been part of it, but uh, you, well, you agreed to take what, part what in What happened it. with that was um, Chip, Chip bowed out, um, and then I got contacted, not... Um, I got contacted with the, hey, Chip has left us high and dry. Would you agree to do this? And I was like, okay. Um, and 
I was explained one side of the story for how things had come to the point where they were at. And honestly, I wasn't paying attention to, like, any of the other stuff that was going on. So I didn't even know that there had already been something that had gotten canceled. I'd had my head in my books, frankly. Mm. So I was like, well, if if you can, you know, meet these, these things, because... I, I love the guys, but they're not always the most organized guys when it comes to putting events together. And I've just I've learned that from from a couple of things. And sometimes there are mitigating factors, but and and result being um, when when it started to become really obvious that for whatever reason plane tickets hadn't been arranged, travel hadn't been arranged, hotel hadn't been arranged, I had to as politely as possible bow out because there was no point in having people want to show up and expect to see me and have to tell fans it's like oh sorry i'm still in ohio because i have no way of getting to wherever this is happening right um, and i i will say at this point um the very beginning of july due to a number of factors i i cut all ties well, that's probably the best course of action considering what's been going on lately. Uh, but, uh, I mean, at the, at the very least, I guess I can say that, uh, you know, we're glad that Ryan's doing better health-wise. Uh, but uh, it seems like he, he's kind of going off the deep end on the other side of things. Uh, and, and I'm sure that you've removed yourself from following along with anything that was going on. Uh, I've, I've, I know entirely too much, and it, it kills me to see what is happening and if I if I am to make a, a public record statement about it, if you've ever had that friend who just can't seem to take good advice on how to help themselves and address issues with their health in a responsible fashion, you will understand the frustration that I feel. Sure. And we can just leave it at that. And uh, we do look forward, though, to hopefully having you come back uh, further on down the line and sharing more with us about your research and also some of your fiction work as well. Uh, when can people expect to start to see that stuff rolling out? Uh, at the moment, we do not have a hard launch date for the first book in the Shadow Side series, which is called Conspiracy of Angels. Uh, but the estimate is fall of 2015. And then from there, it will become a, a more regular thing. Uh, I've got a couple of just fun little uh, goodies that I'll be coming out with in uh, February that I'll, I'll let people know about. One is actually sort of a, a children's story uh, that I was requested to write uh, about uh, how to deal with loss. And this is uh, the loss of a pet called When Millie Comes Back. And I'm working with an artist to illustrate that. Uh, and beyond that, I've been doing some television work with uh, some folks with Destination America. And so you'll probably see my face on TV here and there. Um, again, nothing that is like a commitment to a regular show, because frankly, I ended up on Paranormal State as a favorite of friends and really hadn't set out to have my own TV show. I'm a writer first and a researcher, and while it was fun and I wouldn't trade it, um, you know, the, the, the people that I, I bonded with I do count as, as family, um, even if in some cases circumstances may have made it so that we are no longer friends. Uh, I don't know if I'd want to do a TV show again, honestly. like It, it would have to be a very special circumstance. Oh, understandable. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us. Uh, again, michellebelanger.com is the website. You can follow along with everything, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, okay.
All right. You have a great night. You as well. And for everybody out there, we are just about out of time. So we will say good night for tonight. For Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, who's out there, I'm Tim. We want you all to stay spooktacular.